This is the Reformed Libertarians Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. We explore free society from a Reformed perspective. You can find us at reformedlibertarians.com. We talk about culture, society, politics, economics, theology, philosophy, worldview, and more, helping those interested in liberty and human flourishing to think about them based in the Reformed faith. This is episode 11. We're interviewing Mr. Lawrence W. Reed. I'm Gregory Baus here with Kerry Baldwin, and we'll be talking about a booklet by Mr. Reed entitled Great Myths of the Great Depression. We link to that resource in the show notes, as always. The webpage we link to offers something of a summary that's about a 20 minute read and has free downloads in PDF and ebook formats, which are under 50 pages, and a full audio version in MP3 that's about an hour. In this episode, Mr. Reed introduces himself. He then addresses the progressive era as the context for the ideas and policies that brought about the Great Depression. Mr. Reed then speaks about several common misunderstood elements that caused or perpetuated the Great Depression, including government monetary policy and the Federal Reserve, government-imposed tariffs and stifling of trade, as well as the several New Deal and Wagner Act policies. And Mr. Reed concludes with a reflection on the importance of personal character. Larry Reed is President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, popularly known by its acronym, FEE, with which he's been associated since the late 70s, serving as president from 2008 to 2019. Mr. Reed taught economics at Northwood University in Michigan from 1977 to 1984, and was president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, also in Michigan, from 1987 to 2008. He's visited or traveled in 87 countries, having smuggled liberty literature into Central and Eastern Europe prior to 1991 and the end of the Soviet era. And he was awarded the Grand Cross of the Order of Merit of the Republic of Poland for his liberty activism there. A popular speaker and author of many articles and several booklets, including, among others, Real Heroes Inspiring True Stories of Courage, Character, and Conviction. Was Jesus a Socialist? Why the question is being asked again and why the answer is almost always wrong. Excuse me, Professor, challenging the myths of progressivism. And he also edited and contributed to The Silver Trumpet of Freedom, Black Emancipators and Entrepreneurs, all of which we'll link in the show notes. Mr. Reed, in addition to what we've noted in our intro, you are a fellow Reformed Christian, a uh, fellow confessional Presbyterian. Would you tell our listeners about yourself, some of your background and personal info, if you like, and also a word about how you came to the Reformed faith? Well, first of all, let me thank you, Gregory and Carrie, for having me uh, on the program. I appreciate it very much. I've looked forward to this. Uh, for quite a few weeks. Well, I was born in Western Pennsylvania, a little town, uh, out, actually outside of a little town called Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. I was born and raised in one of its suburbs. And uh, as a young person growing up, my faith sort of flipped and flopped a little bit uh, because uh, my mother, who was the primary person who determined where we went to church, 
sort of shifted from one to another. So for a time, we went to a a mainline United Presbyterian Church, and for another time, uh, a Pente- Pentecostal church. Uh, remember that pastor sort of uh, scaring the daylights out of me with some of his apocalyptic uh, prophecies. <laughs> oh, no. But um, And then we uh, ended up, uh, for the most of my teen- teenage years, going to a Nazarene church. I didn't come to uh, reform faith until my knowledge of Scripture deepened, and that would have been really in my 40s. And then reading people like uh, J. Gresham Machen, who founded the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, C.S. Lewis, who uh, was, of course, Anglican, but a wonderful lay theologian, and others, I gravitated toward uh, the Reformed faith. And uh, the church I went to for some years in Midland, Michigan, before moving here to Georgia 13 years ago, was a Presbyterian Church of America. And I enjoyed that and the, the pastor I had very, very much. Also, I'm an economist and historian by profession. My interests in those subjects really were were galvanized by a 1968 event, the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. I was still a teenager at that point, and uh, nonetheless, I was horrified by what I saw on the television, Soviet and Warsaw Pact troops and tanks invading Czechoslovakia. And for what purpose? To simply subjugate a people who had dared to move things in the direction of a freer society. And uh, so I started reading a lot of history of communism, socialism, and so forth, and and then uh, joined a group called Young Americans for Freedom when they had a demonstration in downtown Pittsburgh to protest that Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. And at that time, when you joined that organization, they sent you a box of literature, much of which was from the Foundation for Economic Education, which all those many years later, I would become president of. And the message was, um, it's not enough just to be against tanks in the streets. You have to understand the moral foundations of liberty, the economic foundations. And so um, uh, my understanding of liberty broadened considerably to all those other spheres. And at one point in uh, my college days, I decided in one way or another, uh, I want to devote uh, my life to advancing the principles of liberty. And and that's what I've been doing, either as uh, an economist or historian or writer or speaker or president of uh, two or three think tanks uh, ever since. And now in my 70th year, I'm still as active, even though I've retired from FEE as its president, to the president emeritus role, I'm still as active as ever uh, in uh, speaking and mostly writing because uh, liberty means a great deal to me. That's such a great history. And I love hearing you talk about your your stories and your experiences with spreading the, the message of, of liberty. I want to ask you, you already mentioned some of, you know, how you first came to learn about the principles of, of economics. I wonder how do you how how does your your faith your reformed faith inform your view of liberty and free market economics each one informs the other frankly mm-hmm. and uh, early on in my life i recall before my knowledge uh, of liberty really uh, uh, took off i i had uh, problems whenever i'd hear somebody say that jesus was a socialist or you know was a left leaning uh, 
political philosopher in any way, yeah. because I was looking around the world and knowing and seeing that uh, countries that called themselves socialists and practiced it in one form or another uh, were authoritarian regimes uh, where people were trying to get out of. And, and uh, those regimes were crushing dissent and jailing dissidents and imposing uh, impoverishment uh, through their economic policies. And I thought, I can't square that with what I understand to be the teachings of Jesus. And so my connecting the two has been really an evolutionary process over many decades. And finally, several years ago, I decided, you know, somebody needs to write a book that explains in some detail why the teachings of Jesus do not square in any way, even remotely, with the ethics or the economics of what we call socialism. So that that interest then culminated in my book, Was Jesus a Socialist? But uh, I think the teachings of Jesus are perfectly compatible with the ideas of liberty. And also the very nature of human beings, I think, in, informs us. How did God create us? He didn't create us as a, a fleet of robots. He didn't pre-program us to think a certain way on every matter that we confront in our lives, he gave us considerable free will. And uh, each of us is a unique and precious being. No two people who have ever lived on this planet have been precisely alike. And so that seemed to me to argue in favor of allowing considerable freedom. Otherwise, how can you be yourself when socialism tries to homogenize and collectivize us and make us follow the orders of some Buddy with political power, I think that runs counter to human nature, uh, the nature that God himself bestowed upon us at creation. Excellent. We should say, as supporters of a genuinely free market, we're not defenders of the sort of economy that has existed in the U.S., at least since the progressive era beginning in the late 1800s. We are opposed to government economic planning and economic regulations because as aggression against persons and property, they are unjust and further, they are invariably damaging to care for the poor and overall individual and societal well-being. Yep, I agree. In your booklet, The Great Myths of the Great Depression, which we will talk a little bit about now. You have four basic headings. And before we go through each of those, I thought maybe we could take a retrospect at the more immediate context of the progressive era with the other Roosevelt, Theodore and Woodrow Wilson, and uh, that time period, I suppose, roughly some years after the Civil War, leading up to World War I. Could you give our listeners a basic idea? What was the Progressive Era? How did it prepare the way for Hoover's and FDR's insane policies that we're about to talk about? Yeah, these uh, ideological changes that then led to uh, new movements and streams of thought and actions and policies uh, that began oh, I guess under Teddy Roosevelt as well as anybody, uh, really have their roots in um, the world of academia and uh, intellectuals in the late 19th century. You know, I mean, as late as the early 1890s, we had a president, my favorite, Grover Cleveland, 
a Democrat, no less, who believed in classical liberal values, small government, free trade, low taxes, balanced budgets. He was opposed to a welfare state, a great president. But then um, the very next Democrat president, Woodrow Wilson, 20 years later, is a very different kind of Democrat, a big government progressive. And so those years in between are profoundly important in American political history. And that shift in the Democratic Party especially, but also among Republicans, was extremely important in explaining uh, the, the rest of the 20th century because progressive ideas were really taking hold then. The notion of progressivism is the idea that the federal government should not be constrained as the founders intended it to be by an agrarian document like the Constitution. You know, that's a phrase they like to use. It was a a document okay for its time, but you know, times have changed. That's what a lot of the progressives tried to tell us at the turn of the last century. Woodrow Wilson in particular uh, argued that a very smart elite, of which he counted himself one, <laughs> would be better equipped to manage the country than um, uh, old-fashioned documents like the Constitution. And that's a, that's a profound change. And um, thinking that uh, he helped to bring about and, and certainly put in place as policy. I regard him as our worst president in American history. Robert Cleveland is certainly one of the very best. Both are Democrats, 20 years apart. How do you go from the best to the worst? Uh, same party, even. Well, it's because of the uh, shifting ideas in the direction of progressivism. Part of the progressive uh, mentality, especially on the more extreme end of things, is that uh, truth is not objective, that it's whatever you want it to be, that your truth it can be just as valuable as somebody else's truth. And you see that today expressed very openly. It's only been the last 10 years that we have heard this phrase, his truth or her truth, with the frequency that we do. And every time I hear that, I think back to, you know, this is what progressives wanted to do. They wanted to make truth, something that uh, was no longer anchored in things such as, uh, you know, what was ultimately right and derived from scripture. They wanted to make it uh, subjective and relative. And so when I hear that, I, I immediately say, no, there is no such thing as his truth or her truth. There is the truth. And if your truth doesn't coincide with the truth, you're the one that's got the problem, not the truth. So, well, anyway, that, those ideas of progressivism gradually took hold of academia, and now we see their full flowering in the Biden administration is pretty down the line, uh, hard left progressive, and it's participating in the ripping apart of um, America's foundational principles, and, uh, something that I think is a, a real, that history will record as a genuine tragedy that we have to work to, uh, to turn around. I think it's somewhat ironic that the moral, if not other subjective, subjectivism or relativism promoted by a, what came to be known as a progressive or progressivist uh, perspective, nonetheless has its own absolutes. And so there's a uh, hypocritical tolerance. Yeah. One of the connections between today's progressives and the early progressives, I think, maybe a Malthusian sort of population control mentality. So not only were these people holding themselves up as the elite experts that were going to reshape human nature itself and society 
but uh, one of their diabolical plans has always been to exterminate certain number of undesirables. And that's, that's been true from the early progressives up, up to today. Yeah, the early progressives were up to their eyeballs in what we call eugenics. Mm-hmm. The idea that, uh, you know, with the right people in charge using the force of government, we can sort of uh, push things in the direction where only the right kinds of people will have children, uh, will breed out of humanity the less desirable elements of society, which is, you know, it ought to be a frightening thought to anybody. It doesn't start from the premise that each and every person is unique and comes into this world with the right to do anything that's peaceful, as the liberty perspective uh, tells us. It's the idea that a handful of elites can plan our lives for us, even snuff them out if they decide that we don't fit in. Progressives today have tried to hide that under the rug. And so, uh, many of them, of course, still uh, promoted as some of the early ones did 100 years ago. But when the progressive movement started, eugenics was a, a very important element of it. Which is ironic because they very much appeal to the marginalized yeah. and individual expression and in certain in, in certain ways, that's what they appeal to. But then it's like siphoning them into this this collective mentality and, you know, you do what's best for the collective, not for the individual. and. And that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. You rarely will hear progressives uh, exalt the uh, uncommonness in us. They like to commonize us, mm-hmm. uh, homogenize us. And I tell a lot of audiences these days, almost no matter what my topic is, I'll find a way to get around to this, that it's not the common man to whom we owe tremendous gratitude and appreciation, but rather the uncommon in us. And we should hope that the that, that people will seek to be not average or common, but rather uncommonly good, uncommonly generous, uncommonly philanthropic, uncommonly inventive, entrepreneurial, and so forth. So I don't elevate commonness. I, I elevate uncommon. Stand out from the crowd. Speak truth to power. Uh, be as good as you can be, even if it means it's twice as better as the next guy. Yeah, I think that's good. So let's move into your booklet here, The Great Myths of the Great Depression. This booklet corrects quite a bit of misunderstanding that Americans have been taught about the Great Depression era, how those things were solved. And you've broken it into four parts. First part is on monetary policy and business cycle. And one thing that I've noticed when I have conversations with friends who are not libertarian or don't have a good foundation in economics as they don't understand the point of monetary policy. Why, you know, it's it's just this thing that we use to buy and sell and the government makes the rules about that and what's wrong with that. So would you mind starting out? I, I guess first talk about why it's important to understand things like monetary policy in the business cycle and then talk about how that impacted the Great Depression era. Monetary policy has uh, huge implications for the economy. In fact, if a country doesn't get its money right, it's going to mess up a lot of things because money, think of it this way, money is at least one side of every non-barter transaction, right? So whatever affects money will affect everything else. Barter is exchanging a pen for a pencil, a good for a good. And we do that, but not very often. Most of our exchanges involve a medium of exchange or money. So if you if you mess up money, that is, let's say, if you divorce it from any reality or, or precious metal, 
and uh, then just print it like crazy, well, you can destroy an economy. And one of the consequences that the Great Depression is an illustration of, of government monetary policy run amok, is uh, the business cycle, uh, the ups and downs in the economy that make life so difficult, especially at the downside, that throw people out of work, make them hostile to the system because they think that's where the problem comes from. All of this is the direct result of government intervention. In fact, in our case, it's the Federal Reserve System, which was a progressive invention over 100 years ago, that is at the source of our boom-bust cycle and the Great Depression in particular. You know, I take my word for that. Even Ben Bernanke, a former Federal Reserve Board of Governors chairman, and I was in the room when he said this. It was at uh, Milton Friedman's 90th birthday party. He admitted that the Federal Reserve System, uh, under his predecessors, had caused the Great Depression. And he assured Milton Friedman and those of us in the audience that they learned from that and they won't do it again. But every recession that we've had, as well as the Great Depression, was preceded by unwise expansionary policy of the Federal Reserve. So when you're looking at the Great Depression and looking at that first phase of it, the monetary phase, that's when we identify the Federal Reserve and its policy of the late 20s that sort of set us up for a depression. From 1924 to early 1929, the Federal Reserve was creating money hand over fist. It had driven interest rates to record lows. The banks were flush with funds. People were rushing to the banks to borrow this cheap money. And uh, if any of your viewers or listeners are thinking, well, that sounds like pre-2008, they're right. <laughs> it's the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. So the Fed set us up by um, this rampant expansion of money and credit. But then in early 29, it, be it began to radically reverse itself. And over the next three years, it would preside over a massive contraction of the money supply by about a third. So it ballooned the money supply by two-thirds and then slashed it by a third in the early 1930s. You can't expect an economy to just slide right through that. I mean, it, it's like a drunk who goes, or, or a man who goes to a party and drinks like a fish, and he feels great mm -hmm. uh, while he's doing that. And then he stumbles home at 2 a.m. and wakes up a few hours later with a terrible headache. Well, that's the depression phase of his cycle. Right. And if you come upon him, you would say, you know, you, the harm that you did is... Is not right now. You're just paying the price for it now. You were doing the harm last night when you had a great time. Right. You shouldn't have been drinking like a fish. That's why you're, you've got a terrible hangover now. The economy looks like that when the Federal Reserve behaves that way. And that's what it does. It expands and then over expands. We have an inflationary boom and then it tries to correct it through a deflationary bust. We'll never get off of that roller coaster unless we. Um, uh, I think, ultimately, get rid of the Federal Reserve. I've been told that the business cycle, if left alone, has these natural ebbs and flows, right? Yeah. It corrects itself in those natural ebbs and flows. And when the government gets involved and starts creating policy, whether it's well-intentioned or not, what it does is it increases the ebb and flow such that, you know, you have a, a higher boom and then, you know, that correction is much more painful. Whereas if you leave it alone those ebbs and flows are hardly even noticeable. That's right. We've had the greatest economic depression in our history under the Federal Reserve System. And we've had frequent recessions under the Federal Reserve System. And yet before its creation, you had progressives say, 
well, look at the instability in the free economy. We have to uh, get over that by creating this government central bank. All I did was make things even worse. The cycles are more pronounced both on the upside and the downside. We'll have some links in the show notes for our listeners, additional resources on some of these points brought out in that first section about monetary policy. The second section gets into the disintegration of the world economy, if I remember particularly through tariffs. There may have been some other elements of that. Touch on a little bit of what you say in that section. You know, the change in Federal Reserve policy from expansion to contraction in 1929 was the proximate cause of the start of the Depression and the stock market crash in the fall of 29. But a lot of people don't remember or don't know or never told that in the spring of 1930, there were signs of recovery. The stock market had rebounded. It, it regained half the ground it had lost. We didn't have a depression yet. It was only a recession. In May of 1930, unemployment was is not yet at double digits. It was just a nagging, serious, but not a recession, but not yet a depression. What made it go from a recession to a depression was the second phase, uh, the disintegration of the world economy. Before I mention the tariffs that are key to this phase, something in 1932 happened that also sent the economy in the wrong direction. President Hoover and the Congress decided, uh-oh, our Federal budget deficit is getting too big because revenues are down and spending is up. So let's fix that, not by cutting spending, but by doubling the income tax. I mean, can you imagine that? We're in a recession and now we're going to double the income tax. That happened in 1930. The top rate was more than doubled. It went from 24 to 65%. The economy is clearly in now a deep depression, unemployment way up in double digits. So let me get back up and go to the 1930 uh, Smoot-Hawley Act, which was a massive increase in tariffs. But the theory in Washington in 1930 was, we've got a recession, so we've got to get those people back to work. So let's uh, raise tariffs or taxes on imports high enough that the Americans will stop buying foreign goods and instead they'll buy American-made goods and that'll put people back to work. That was the thinking. What they didn't realize was, that you can't close the door to imports without closing the door to exports. If foreigners can't sell here because our tariffs on their goods are too high, they can't earn the dollars that they need to buy here. So, you know, if a Japanese ship doesn't bring, uh, say, automobiles, I don't know if we were getting any from Japan in those early years, but just as an example, if it can't come here with cars because people can't afford to buy them, then the, the boat never leaves with American agricultural goods, with soybeans and wheat and so forth. So the tariff hikes precipitated an international trade war and any business that was highly dependent upon uh, the flow of world trade, either because it was in the import or the export business, really suffered. Um, and this put the economy in a tailspin. Then it was on top of that, a full-scale depression and trade war in 1932 that we got the big hike in uh, income taxes, uh, which uh, took a very bad situation and made it even worse. You know, the thing with the tariffs reminds me a whole lot about a recent president, Trump, who introduced a ton of tariffs. And it was all in the name of make America great again, get America back to work. Um, I mean, the echoes 
in history are like identical. Yeah. So it's interesting, and maybe you can speak to that a little bit, that sort of sentiment that politicians, presidents will use of we're going to make America great again by, ha- you know, forcing you to buy American by making it expensive to import. Yeah, this is not to sanitize behavior of, say, the Chinese who do misbehave in world trade and they cheat and they you know, steal and they don't adhere to the agreements they themselves have signed and so forth. And there may be policies that could discourage that. But but trying to combat that through higher tariffs is sort of uh, cutting off your nose to spite your face. And the, uh, the studies are pretty definitive now that the tariffs of the Trump years did more harm than good. So that's an echo of 1930 for sure. Although I have to say back then, those hikes in 1930 were more serious mm. than anything the Trump administration did. And of course, they came on top of an already bad situation. Right. Trump's tariffs came at a time when, for the most part, the economy was in a recovery mode before COVID. And so their full effect wasn't as damaging as it might have been. Why don't we talk about Section 3, the New Deal? I'm particularly interested in this because my home state, New Mexico, became a state in 1912, right before the creation of the Federal Reserve. And when our state legislature really started enacting a number of laws, they're basically all New Deal era laws. Many of them are still in effect. So tell us about the New Deal and what happened with that. In 1932, we had a presidential election. Uh, The incumbent, Republican Herbert Hoover, ran against the Democratic nominee, the former governor of New York, Franklin Roosevelt. And I don't know that Hoover could possibly have won that. He was partly responsible for the Great Depression in that uh, he was the one who doubled the income tax for signing the law to do that. He's the one who spearheaded the hike in tariffs. And he never really questioned what the Federal Reserve was doing. And Roosevelt ran against him in 32 on a platform that people like you and I would have supported. I mean, he attacked Hoover for uh, leading the country down the path to socialism for presiding over the greatest spending and taxing administration in American history. uh, Roosevelt ran on the Democratic platform, which called for a 25% reduction in federal spending. Can you imagine that? Hmm. He did none of that. Upon taking office in 1933, uh, right off the bat, he inaugurated what he called the New Deal, which was a package of legislative measures that were very intrusive, very costly to the economy, very regulatory in nature. One was the National Industrial Recovery Act. Uh, you know, they give these harmful laws such high-sounding names. Right. What it did was it uh, established uh, price, uh, price controls. And the theory from the Roosevelt administration was that we need to get prices up, that prices had fallen. Well, of course they had. The Federal Reserve was contracting the money supply for the third year in a row. And they thought that, well, the way to do that is to put penalties into the law for businesses who cut their prices. And a a famous case uh, that illustrates this involves a tailor from, I think it was either New Jersey or or New York, who was prosecuted under the NIRA because he charged 35 cents for pressing a suit of clothes instead of 40 cents. Mm. Now, can you imagine that? You're you're lucky if you've got a suit to to press, you know, in the midst of the Great Depression, and you take it in to get cleaned, and the guy says... uh, I'll charge you only 35 cents. And he goes to jail because he should have charged you 40 cents. 
Mm. So this was stupid. Uh, this was depressing uh, to the economy. It wasn't helpful. And something like, well, unemployment jumped by several points because of the NIRA. But if you think that's something, within the same month, Roosevelt pushed through Congress the Agricultural Adjustment Act. And it was designed to force uh, farm prices up. And it was enforced by orders for the destruction of perfectly good fields of corn and wheat and other crops and the perfectly uh, end of destruction of perfectly healthy cattle, sheep, and pigs. Henry Wallace, Secretary of Agriculture, in just one order from Washington, ordered the destruction of 6 million baby pigs. Mm. The theory was, well, prices are down. If we force them up, then farmers will get more money and they'll spend more money and that'll spread prosperity into ever-widening circles. But of course, a higher price for the farmer means higher prices for everybody who buys his product. This is redistribution through destruction. Yeah. This is not some magic formula for economic recovery. Fortunately, those two very destructive acts, uh, which uh, kept us in the Depression, were thrown out by the Supreme Court by 1935-36. Can you speak a little bit to what happened with gold and the dollar? In 1933, within a month or so of taking office, Roosevelt uh, recognized that, hey, uh, we've got to, at some point, reinflate and start printing money again. But the uh, what's left of our gold standard makes that difficult. So he ordered, by executive order, not by act of Congress, by executive order, uh, the confiscation of the gold holdings of individual Americans, except for with certain exceptions. They didn't take it out of your teeth, for instance. <laughs> I think there were some new dealers who would have been happy to do that if they right. thought they could play with it. Uh, so they confiscated gold and revalued it officially at a higher rate and gave Americans less than, a, than it was worth under penalty of $10,000 in fines or 10 years in prison or both if you didn't turn your gold in. So we had a connection between the dollar and gold that at least would allow us to be assured that government couldn't hyperinflate, but Roosevelt stripped that away. We're still paying a price for that today. So the only connection left after 1933 between gold and, and the dollar was for foreign central banks. They could claim gold for their dollars, but you and I weren't even allowed to own it. We're talking a little bit about inflation. That's a huge topic today. Tell us how inflation is caused and how that blame is shifted. Yeah, you know, we used to define inflation properly as uh, uh, an increase in the quantity of money and credit beyond the increase in the demand for those things. And one of the effects we, th we saw uh, would be rising prices. But in more recent decades, we've allowed ourselves to be fooled into the notion that no, inflation is the rising prices. Well, it, that makes a huge difference because if you change the definition, you change the responsibility. If you define it as rising prices, well, then you might be led to believe that uh, the culprit here is the hardware store owner, uh, the grocery store owner, you know, the fast food uh, uh, seller. They're raising prices. They're, they're the uh, culprits here. If you define inflation as an increase in the quantity of money with rising prices as a consequence, then you ask the question, well, who does that? And, of course, if you do it, you will be prosecuted as a counterfeiter. Mm -hmm. It's something the government has monopolized. So you first get an increase in the quantity of money and credit engineered by government policy. 
And then one of the effects of that is that prices later rise. So you have to define it properly to begin with. And the reason we've seen increases in the rate of price rises in the last uh, couple of years is because the government has been creating money and credit at record rates, driving interest rates to dirt cheap levels. It was really the big surprise is that we didn't see higher prices sooner than we did. But they stem directly from what government is doing in the first place. Well, in addition to the monetary policy of the Fed, the disintegration of the world economy through tariffs and the aggravation of the downturn through doubling or increasing of the income tax, the political voodoo of the New Deal, uh, (laughs) the literal robbing of the American people of their gold and increased debt, the make work programs, the wanton destruction of resources. In addition to that, the fourth section covers the Wagner Act, which I would like to pronounce Wagner (laughs) as it's reminiscent of proto-fascism and the other NRA. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the Wagner Act was passed in 35, but it was scheduled to take effect in 37. So we didn't really begin to feel the effects of it until 37. But it's interesting to note that in 1936, once the worst of FDR, the National Industrial Recovery Act and the Agricultural Adjustment Act in particular, had been thrown out by the Supreme Court, the economy showed some signs of life and unemployment uh, fell back into the uh, uh, mid-teens from a high of like 26, 28%. But then 37 comes along and bam, we get this depression within a depression. Everything falls apart again before ever fully recovering from the depression. And a big reason for that is the Wagner Act. It bestowed upon organized labor massive new powers to organize and to collectively bargain. Uh, It created the National Labor Relations Board, uh, which still to this day governs major labor agreements between labor and and, uh, management. Some of the powers that the uh, Wagner Act gave to organize labor, fortunately, were clawed back later, like under Taft-Hartley, 1947, which allowed states to create right-to-work laws so that workers couldn't be compelled to join unions. And about 27 or 28 states are right-to-work states today. But in 37, you had, in reaction to the Wagner Act taking effect, you had a wave of industrial strikes. This was the time of the sit-down strikes in the auto plants in Michigan. Uh, The number of man hours lost to strike action uh, doubled in the space of a year. So the economy was sort of shutting down in certain places where strike action prevented uh, production. It was very harmful and it drove away a lot of investors, especially from industries that were unionizing because they thought, oh, this is not a place to invest. These unions are going to vilify management, they're going to set up an inherent, ongoing, never-ending conflict to justify their existence. And to the extent they're successful, they'll jack up the costs of doing business and let's find someplace else to invest. So the Wagner Act was very harmful, but you also had in that same year, and this helps explain the 1937 economic collapse, you had the Supreme Court packing scheme. Roosevelt was trying to pack the court with friends of his who would rubber stamp the New Deal. And a lot of investors said, if he gets that, uh, all that stuff that we got rid of is going to come back. That wasn't uh, very inviting to investment. Fortunately, that 
his own party turned against him on that. And then that same year, he did secure an undistributed profits tax of 35%. He wanted 85, but he only got 35% so-called undistributed profits tax, which is a tax on retained earnings, an important source of capital. He's basically saying to business, any capital that you've earned that you want to put to work, say, and in growing the factory, I want a third of it. (laughs) So, you know, what kind of an environment does that produce? So we struggled along for the, in the late thirties with the weight of all this stupid um, new deal stuff until World War II. And while some people say, well, that's what caused us to finally recover. I point out to them, not really. Yeah, we, unemployment looked better because we drafted 11 million men and they didn't count in the unemployment numbers anymore. For the average person in America, in terms of his or her standard of living, we didn't see a recovery in that until after the war. And that was because in 1945, you had the beginning of a drastic reduction in government spending, maybe mainly through demobilization for the war. And you had uh, Harry Truman signing into law a reduction in the corporate income tax from 90% down to about 30%. So uh, that makes a big difference right there in 1945. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about job creation programs, the minimum wage, because these are also programs that are sold to the American public as, you know, this is going to help us get out of poverty. This is going to help the lowest paid workers have a, you know, quote unquote, living wage. How are those things actually counterproductive and harmful to the people that they're intended to help? Well, take the minimum wage. The late economist Henry Hazlitt put it very well when he said, You can't make a person worth a certain amount by simply making it illegal to pay him any less. You you might say, oh, you're getting $2 an hour, but uh, we're going to force employers to pay you at least five. Well, an employer doesn't say, oh, just by government mandate, this employee is already uh, automatically worth two and a half times what I was paying him. No, uh, that's that doesn't change at all. The employer just says, well, if I have to pay that much, I can't justify it. And so the lower end jobs are the first to go. The minimum wage prices the unskilled and the inexperienced, the newcomers to the labor market, prices them out of the labor market. If it really made sense, why would anybody stop at $5 or seven fifty or 50 Why not just declare $50 an hour is the national minimum? Everybody has to be paid at least that much. When you take it to that extreme, you can imagine then that uh, this has negative effects. Even small movements in it can price certain people like uh, restaurant workers in a very competitive industry out of work. And that's what the minimum wage has been doing for years. It it does uh, the most harm to the very people it is supposed to help. It doesn't uh, help the rocket scientists at all, has minimal effect, no effect on them, but it does make life more difficult for people with little experience fewer skills that just need a start to get something on their resume, get some skills developed, and then move up the ladder. Right. But it's like the government with the minimum wage just knocks the ladder out from under them before they get started. Uh, you mentioned uh, more than just the minimum wage. Or what was the other? Oh, job creation programs. Oh, yeah. The make work uh, schemes. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people look back on, they say, well, oh, you know, maybe the depression took a while to go away, but Roosevelt working on it and he got jobs for people through the Works Progress Administration or the Civilian Conservation Corps, you know, all those various alphabet agencies. A couple of responses to that I would offer. One is, if he weren't doing all 
the destructive things that were keeping us in depression. Maybe, maybe even you wouldn't have seen the need for these make work schemes. You know, why not fix the fundamentals? Don't create the environment that causes unemployment and then take credit when you, you know, throw money at the unemployed. But that's, that's what was happening. A lot of those make-work schemes uh, were just farcical, uh, paying people to do nothing or next to nothing or silly things. You know, it may have made people think he was doing something on our behalf, but by robbing Peter to pay Paul to do things that were very dubious, of, of dubious economic value, it's not a prescription for economic recovery. It's a PR stunt right. uh, that actually uh, does more economic harm than good. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Reed, for all your work with Fee in the past and continuing today and your writings to which we will direct our listeners in the show notes. And for this work in particular, helping us come to understand better the Great Depression and disabusing us of the various misunderstandings that have been propagated by the government how could we wrap up this discussion in terms of the importance for the insights that you've brought to us through this consideration of the Great Depression with regard to government intervention in the economy today? Let me uh, wind this up by saying that a bad policy, such as those that perpetuated and caused the Great Depression, are brought about by, uh, yes, bad information, poor knowledge, lack of understanding, but also quite often by uh, something that I think is uh, more fundamental and more explanatory of a nation's predicament than anything else. And it's also something over which each of us can uh, have uh, considerable governance, and that is personal character. A lot of bad policies stem from bad character, either on the part of people who are implementing them because uh, they're thinking of only the short run, not the long run. They're only interested in pleasing certain constituencies, buying uh, that of those groups off with other people's money, or there's something in it for them. I mean, there's a lot of ways that bad character manifests itself. Or it also may be uh, the bad character of the people who support the politicians who are giving us bad policies. We don't often enough demand excellence in our leadership. We uh, reward bad characters by reelecting them. And by character, I mean the traits that most people would say, yep, I, I wish there were more of that in, in the world today. Things like honesty, uh, humility, recognizing how little you know. So don't try to plan other people's lives. Planning your own is a full-time job. Uh, responsibility, courage, patience, gratitude, having a grateful spirit. Those are the qualities of strong character. And when a nation begins to kiss those off, ignore them, and intending instead to be satisfied by, by the crumbs that politicians throw at them, then they have to expect that sooner or later their liberties are going to go too. I don't know of any nation that lost its character and kept its liberty. And so if you want to avoid bad policy, if you want to preserve your liberties, then muster the character to be the best you can be in everything that you do. Don't buy into the notion that government is a fountain of free goodies or we shouldn't care where it gets it, just get it from the government at any cost. Um, uh, we should live personal lives of strong character. If we don't, we certainly can't expect strong character from the people we elect. 
And of course, we want to recommend not only to our listeners, but to others, the important moral virtue of non-aggression, yes. which often goes by the wayside in such discussions. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Reed, for talking with us today. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you both, Kerry, Gregory. I enjoyed it very much. And uh, even though it is well into January, still uh, best wishes for the new year. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to the Reformed Libertarians podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. See the website for each episode's show notes and sign up for our email list. Don't forget to rate and review Reformed Libertarians podcast on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcatcher. Find our email and social media on our contact page at reformedlibertarians.com.